0: Please turn with me now uh, in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. This morning's sermon scripture can be found in Genesis chapter 12, beginning in verse 10 and reading through verse 20 at the end of the chapter. Genesis 12, uh, 10 and following. Would you please stand with me now for the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word? Genesis 12, 10, and following, now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to dwell there, for the famine was severe in the land. And it came to pass, when he was close to entering Egypt, that he said to Sarai, his wife, indeed, I know that you are a woman of beautiful countenance. Therefore, it will happen when the Egyptians see you, that they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say you are my sister, that it may be well with me for your sake, and that I may live because of you. So it was when Abram came into Egypt that the Egyptians saw the woman, and she was very beautiful. The princes of Pharaoh also saw her and commended her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken To Pharaoh's house. He treated Abram well for her sake. He had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male and female servants, female donkeys and camels. But the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? I might have taken her as my wife. Now therefore, here is your wife. Take her and go your way. So Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inerrant word. May he bless it to our hearts. You may be seated. Shall we pray? Father, thank you for your holy word, for these stories and for this story of the friend of God, Abraham, the father of the faithful. Bless us as we consider briefly this morning this portion of your holy word. And we ask with all of our hearts that you would grant us now the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ, and your Holy Spirit without measure. Guide us into the truth and grant us faith and obedience in your word. For Jesus' sake, amen. Well, it should come as no surprise to those who are familiar with the Bible to read that there was a famine in the land of Canaan after Abraham and Sarah had arrived there. This is and was a part of the world where severe drought was rather common and devastating famines were an unwelcome but a regular part of life. It would have been far too great a journey for Abram to go back to Mesopotamia where he might have found other well-watered Fertile ground. And so instead, he took his wife, no mention here of Lot accompanying them, and went down to Egypt to dwell there, for the famine was very severe. Egypt would have been a typical refuge in times of famine because the Nile provided a more reliable source of water and therefore of food. This is, of course, the first mention in the Bible of Egypt as a nation or as a kingdom, a country that will be so important for Bible history in so many different ways. And though Egypt for us often carries a negative connotation, it is important for us to remember that this was the first of three times that Egypt would provide sanctuary for God's people. The second time is later in Genesis when Jacob took his family and fled to Egypt, uh, also during times of famine where they ended up staying some 400 years. The third time, mentioned in the New Testament, book of Matthew, was when Joseph and Mary took the infant Savior Jesus to Egypt to escape the satanic and murderous attempts of Herod to kill our Lord when he was still a baby. So though it was a place of slavery, and it is often how we think of it, Egypt is also a place of refuge and of sanctuary in the Bible. But the sojourn into Egypt becomes the background for a very interesting question that the text, I think, demands of us. Was Abraham's descent into Egypt uh, not merely uh, the lie told to Pharaoh about Sarah, but the descent itself? Was this an example of faithlessness, of unbelief, or of doubt in the promises of God? This has, in fact, been argued most vehemently that the descent into Egypt is not merely a geographical descent, but in fact represents a spiritual descent on the part of Abraham as well. Should not Abraham have trusted in God that God would provide for him and his family, even supernaturally if need be, in the land of Canaan, the land God had promised to him and to his descendants. Should he not have stayed, therefore, in Canaan, trusted in the Lord, believed God's promise, and waited for God's provision? Was his descent into Egypt motivated more by fear than by faith? And by unbelief rather than by trust, was it not a violation of what our Lord Jesus would later teach us, that we should not worry about what we will eat or what we will drink or what we will wear, for our Heavenly Father knows just what we need and has promised to provide us our basic needs. These questions and many others have been asked about Abram's sojourn into Egypt at this point. I've been reading a very wonderful biography of Peter Marshall. Some of you may know it. Uh, A man called Peter by his wife, Catherine Marshall. Uh, Peter Marshall was a Presbyterian minister uh, early in the 20th century, who would become the very beloved and revered uh, chaplain of the United States Senate during the 1940s and 1950s. I suppose it's because I'm preaching through Abraham's life now, but I have found the parallels between the life of Abraham and that of Peter Marshall to be rather remarkable at a number of points. Uh, Peter Marshall suffered the death of his father when young Peter was only four years old. Uh, A number of years later, Peter's brother died uh, as a very young man after a terrible accident that left Peter Marshall grief-stricken. When Peter had to strike out from home as a young man to find work, his Scottish mother, a woman of warm and sincere Christian faith, uh, lapsed into her braid Scots, her heavy Scottish dialect, and said to her son as she wept, uh, Quote, Dinna forget your verse, my laddie. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things. Shall be added unto you, long ago I pit ye in the Lord's hands, and I'll no be taken ye away now. He will take care of you. Dinna worry. So should Abraham have sought first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and stayed in Canaan, trusting that God would add? unto him whatsoever he and his family needed. It's been suggested, as I mentioned, that the word to descend at the beginning of the passage can carry spiritual connotation to descend into unbelief and disobedience. It's further suggested that the word to dwell or to sojourn in verse 10 can mean that Abraham indeed intended to stay in Egypt for a long time perhaps even to remain there indefinitely. It's further been argued, though an argument from silence, that nowhere in the Bible is Abraham authorized by God to leave the land promised to him. Now, not all have read the passage this way. Other commentators, older commentators especially, tend to give Abraham the benefit of the doubt here. For example, John Calvin commends Abraham and observes that though his faith was severely tested here and that though the famine presented him with a very significant temptation to his new faith, nevertheless, his trust in God's promise was unwavering uh, through circumstances that demanded that he make a sojourn into Egypt to save him and his family Interestingly enough, Calvin sees in the same verb in verse 10, sojourn, as he renders it, a hint that Abraham intended to stay only briefly in Egypt. So you'll have to make your own conclusion, I think, on this matter. It is difficult to say, but surely the text raises for us a very important matter, one that we must always be concerned with as Christians And that is the matter of the relationship between our trusting in God's promises to provide for us and the way in which we go about making sure that we are provided for. It is indeed possible for us, beloved, to run ahead of God and to act in such a way that we do not give God, as it were, the opportunity to provide for us in His way, And in so doing, we often put more faith in ourselves and our own wisdom and ability than we do in the Lord and his promises and his provision. And this will, of course, not be the only time we see this in Abraham. He will be promised a child. A child will be promised to Abraham and Sarah in their old age. And Abraham will go about having that child or seeking to have that child in his own way, according to his own wisdom. And so, beloved, I want you to think very much about this question. Are there ways in which we live our lives and make decisions and pursue courses of action that, in fact, are more about making our own way and trusting in ourselves to provide than waiting on the Lord to provide for us in his way? and so to live by faith in his promise. Well, regarding what happens next, we can speak much more unequivocally and much more emphatically. Sarah was a very beautiful woman. You may wonder about this, for she was 65 years old. But remember that this only represented about half of her life. She is middle-aged, we might say. And it is, of course, possible that God supernaturally guarded her health uh, as well as her appearance. Remember that she gave birth at the rather advanced age of 90. But she was a tremendously beautiful woman. And many women are still rather striking at middle age. And so as they drew near to Egypt... Abraham, uh, knowing that Sarah was a woman of great beauty and fearing that when the Egyptians saw Sarah's great beauty and learned that she was Abram's wife, that they would kill him, that they would let her live and take her for themselves. And he therefore asked her to lie about their relationship. Say that she was his half-sister, which incidentally uh, is a kind of half-truth. Genesis 20 tells us that she was a half-sister to Abraham, as odd as that sounds to us today. But she, he asked her to lie about their relationship and say that she was not his wife so that it would go well with Abram, and he would be allowed to live. I think it's all very strange uh, to our modern ears. Uh, It's a different time. Uh, It's a different culture. Uh, Abraham had apparently not been concerned about this happening in Canaan. It is possible that the Egyptians had a reputation for this, perhaps the particular pharaoh who ruled at this time. But the place and the culture were such that Abraham feared for his life If Sarah was found to be his wife, he feared that he would be killed if he represented an obstacle to their desire for Sarah's beauty. A husband would be seen as a much greater hindrance to their having Sarah than a brother would have been. Think, for example, of the story of David and Bathsheba. After David saw Bathsheba and took Bathsheba and slept with her, It was not her brother Uriah, but her husband Uriah that David made sure was killed on the front lines of battle. Much of it is very telling about the place of women in ancient society as well. Notice verse 14, the woman, a typical objectification of women. Further, Sarah never speaks in the passage. Abraham speaks, Pharaoh speaks. Ultimately, the Lord intervenes and acts decisively. But Sarah, we can only assume, acquiesces to the plot. And just as Abraham anticipates, is quickly noticed and quickly taken. Verse 15, notice the verb. She was taken to Pharaoh's house. It's all a horror and all very real, the very real and horrifying experience of many women in history. And here is an unforeseen complication. We don't know if an act of adultery took place, though the whole narrative suggests that God intervened before a sexual relationship ensued. But unwittingly, for Abraham, she became a member of Pharaoh's harem, something he could have never envisioned, and possibly entered a period of preparation. Remember Esther. She did not appear immediately before the king of Persia, waited a number of months, during which time other members of the harem would have gone into the king. So Abraham's ruse has backfired most terribly. Sarah was taken from him. She was in the harem of the king of Egypt. There's nothing Abraham can do about it now. Now only God can save. But while Sarah was taken to Pharaoh's house, Abraham was not only spared, but treated far better than he could have expected. He had sheep and oxen and donkeys and servants and camels lavished upon him. While Sarah was in the harem of Pharaoh, this must have pierced his heart. He got rich because he let his beautiful wife be taken into Pharaoh's house to save himself. And as Pharaoh's rebuke and Abraham's silence will make clear, Abraham did indeed expose his dear wife to great risk. And he did so in order to save his own skin. He was living according to a certain philosophy. A philosophy that might be summarized like this. Better defiled than dead. And it's also very startling. And it's startling enough in itself. But dear friend, put it in its context. Almost immediately after we ascend the heights of Genesis 12:1 through 9 we descend to the lows of Genesis 12:10 through 20 The Lord of the covenant has appeared to Abraham has given him the covenant promises has enumerated all the ways he is going to bless Abraham and his descendants has promised blessing upon blessing to this man And to his family. And on Abraham's side. His striking and stirring embrace of these promises. His soaring faith. His remarkable obedience. As evidenced by his willingness to leave his land. And his entire past life behind him in Babylon. And go to the place the Lord would show him. It is a remarkable beginning. But so soon after hearing god promised the land and the nation and the blessing to abraham what do we find but almost immediately he is in danger of losing his wife perhaps of losing his own life and forfeiting any hope of any offspring who might someday inherit the land of canaan god has promised a seed And now through his own sinfulness and cowardice, his wife belongs to another man. And as she is taken into his harem and becomes his wife and bears him children, what then will become of the covenant? As you can see, beloved, through Abraham's sin and disobedience, the covenant is brought into great jeopardy. And so the text, therefore, presses upon us a truly monumental question. What would have happened? What would have become of the covenant if it were left in the hands of sinful men to keep it? And is the answer not obvious? What would become of the covenant if left in the hands of sinful men like Abraham It would fail. Immediately, terribly, catastrophically, embarrassingly, tragically, it would fail. Through the sin of men, the conniving, the cowardice, it would fail and spectacularly so. And so, obviously, the text provides a great demonstration of the Lord's faithfulness to his promise, of his covenant to his people, and his ability, and his ability alone to keep it. It's a lesson we will learn again and again through this study, and it's one of the most important lessons we will ever learn. The salvation of individuals and the salvation of the world come to pass not because of the faithfulness of men to God, but because of the faithfulness of God to men, because of God's own faithfulness. Man's record will be one of failure and folly and sin, but God's record will be one of unrelenting faithfulness to keep his covenant and to do for his people what they could never do for themselves, to get them out of circumstances and situations that they could never get themselves out of by their own power. And it all points, does it not, to the reality that we are rescued from the death and misery of our sins, not by anything that we can do, but by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, he who saves us by his faithfulness when we were utterly incapable of saving ourselves. That's the story of the covenant. That's the history of redemption. And that's the story of the whole Bible. God's faithfulness to man, not man's faithfulness to God. But the story brings out yet another startling reality. And it's the great inconsistency that so often characterizes even people of faith. Abraham was a man of faith and obedience one moment and then of foolishness and cowardice the next. It's a spiritual schizophrenia, spiritual sanity one moment and the loss of one spiritual mind the next. The lives of believers are lives of faith and unbelief, courage and cowardice, Obedience and disobedience. And so there is the David of faith and the David of courage killing Goliath, befriending Jonathan, sparing Saul. And there's the David of adultery with Bathsheba, killing of Uriah, and such an absent, uninvolved father that his family was devastated for generations. There's Peter, the rock, confident, bold. Peter of the confession of Jesus Christ as Lord. And there's the Peter of the three times denial of even knowing Jesus. And there's Paul, the greatest of all Christians, it is often said, the apostle, the missionary, the champion for Christ, full of boldness, and courage, and faith, who suffered so much for the sake of the Savior, who nevertheless can say of himself, in all honesty, describing his own sinfulness, I do not even understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do but i do what i hate that i do i have the desire to do what is good but i do not carry it out what i do is not the good i want to do i do the evil that is what i keep on doing o oh, wretched man that i am who will deliver me from this body of death now that is romans 7 that is the Apostle Paul, the mature, experienced Christian. Some people have tried to make that a hypothetical man, or Paul before he was converted, but that's all an effort to avoid the uncomfortable reality. There is no perfectionism in this life, there is an abiding, even in the greatest of Christians, of sin. Every Christian struggles every day with the battle of sin and righteousness. It rages in you and it rages in me, the sin that seeks to triumph over us. Abraham dealt with it here. So did Isaac, his son, and Jacob, his grandson. So did Moses and David and the apostles. Every Christian who ever lived this side of glory Is a living, breathing, walking inconsistency. A dichotomy of good and of evil, of faith and of unbelief, of sin and of unrighteousness. Sometimes we are a credit to our Lord, sometimes we're an embarrassment. It's something that every Christian soon discovers whoever walks with Christ for any length of time. Sometimes we're full of faith and grace and strength. It seems like we could move mountains and conquer armies with our faith. At other times we think such unholy thoughts and say such horrible words and are tempted to do such terrible things and do such terrible things we're sometimes left to wonder if a true Christian is capable of things like that. It's the inconsistency of our lives, the juxtaposition of sin and righteousness, the wavering between faith and unbelief, courage and cowardice, so devastating to our witness. We sometimes read, Christian biography and missionary biography were left with the impression that these saints of old were men and women who were so strong in faith and so full of righteousness that they never sinned, never failed, and never doubted, never in any way compromised their Christian witness. But it's not so. St. Augustine was profoundly honest with his own continuing struggle with sin. So was Martin Luther in his writings. George Whitfield, one of the greatest preachers who ever lived, had by all accounts a miserable marriage of convenience and a very poor home life. John Wesley, the father of Methodism, had a failed marriage, spent far too much time with women who were not his wife, wrote them endearing letters and told his own wife that if she were dead and buried, what loss would that be to me? His own parting words to her were, I hope I shall never see your wicked face again. Spurgeon admitted that he dealt with sinful pride his entire life through his whole pastoral ministry. Beloved, is it stunning to you, is it not? What a Christian is capable of. What you and I are capable of. How far we can fall. How low we can sink. How poorly we can behave. What awful things we can say. What cowardly and sinful things we can do. Look at what Abraham did here, risking his dear wife, her purity, her safety, jeopardizing the covenant to save his own skin. And One of the things we discover is that we are capable of much worse than we ever do. And if it were not for the grace of God to protect us and to prevent us, we would all sink far deeper into sin and commit much worse sins than we actually do. There are things that we have wanted to do and even planned on doing, that God in his abundant mercy prevented us from doing. Things he prevented from happening, like here, that we in our own stupidity would have caused to happen. That is what God did here. He intervened. He acted at just the right time. He sent plagues to Pharaoh's house to keep the situation from getting completely out of hand and to keep, keep Sarah from getting completely lost and never seen again. And the stunning thing is that Pharaoh somehow recognized in this the hand of God and he heard and believed the message of the plagues and came to Abraham with a series of very good questions that Abraham himself could not refute. In essence, why did you do this? Don't you see what you've done and what this all could have caused? Now get out of here and take your wife, but not without my strong men supporting you and taking you back where you need to go. He proves himself a better man than the man of God. And isn't that often what we see? How often have we said, boy, that person would make a great Christian He or she is so honest, so generous, so kind. Sometimes Christians can be the most courageous, the most generous, the most faith-filled people on the face of the earth. Sometimes we can be the most cowardly, the most selfish, the most petty, and the most pathetic. We are at the same time righteous and sinners. We're justified but we still struggle against sin. We're a new creation in Christ, but the effects of the fall remain in us, and we still do battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. We're prone to sin, prone to wander, even as redeemed folk, but thank the Lord He will never let us fully nor finally fall. He will keep us for himself. He will bring us home to glory. Another parallel. Peter Marshall told a lie as a young man. He wanted desperately to join the Royal Navy. He lived near Glasgow, Scotland, near enough to the seacoast where he could go to the harbor and see the Navy ships coming in and out of port port. He wanted so much to wear the uniform of a sailor, but you had to be 15 years and nine months to enlist, and he was only 14, so he lied on his application. His application was discovered, the lie was found out, he was rejected, and he had to find something else to do. In time, he received the call to ministry after a visiting missionary came through town. But his lie, his sin, did not disqualify him. If it did, if ours did, we'd all be lost. Years later, uh, Peter Marshall's friend would ask him to come to America. Saying to him, Peter, we've got as many sinners in the United States as Scotland ever had. And he made the journey. He crossed the sea, imperfect, but trusting the Lord, and the Lord would use him. Oh, dear friend, we are all double minded, we're all hypocrites. We're all walking puzzles and enigmas. We are at once in love with the Lord and disgusted with our lives. And I might warn you, but most of all, I would encourage you, the final story of your life will not be the record of your sin and your unfaithfulness to God but it will be the record of God's grace and his faithfulness to you. That is what every Christian who ever lived found. How is Abraham known? As the friend of God and as the father of all the faithful, but not as the coward of Egypt. That's grace. Let's pray. Father, even now, um, some of us feel uh, the weight and burden of sin, and we don't feel that we can uh, lift our eyes to heaven or approach you in your holiness. And so we would thank you, O Lord, for this testimony uh, this morning from your holy word, that though we are indeed great sinners and far more depraved and perverse than we care say, that your grace and your righteousness are greater by far and will be the determining truth of our lives who are in Christ. So bless to us now this, your holy word. And send us forth with all courage and confidence in your mighty gospel and in your Son who is strong to save even the vilest of sinners. And help us walk accordingly, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.